how come we can't do this event? He's like, well, because it's a rave. And we've been told by the police that you guys throw raves and, you know, raves are illegal and we don't want that kind of crowd here. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brody Meyer, and this is WHBC Radio, brought to you by the FuseMe mobile application. We interview talented business individuals to learn about who they are, where they came from, and the people that have helped them along the way. Today's guest is Slater Hogan. Slater is a DJ and indie legend who has over 100 releases on different music labels and has spun all over the globe. He started his promotion and production company, Kid Presents, with longtime fellow DJ and business partner, John Larner, in 2002. Kid Presents has brought indie incredible artists such as Skrillex, Snoop Dogg, g Easy, Steve Aoki, and Bass Nectar, to name a few. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the underground king of Indianapolis, Slater Hogan. Yeah, and I've been DJing for like almost 20 years, and when it first started, it was all vinyl, so I had to collect these things and go to the record store every Friday when the new shipments came in, and it's actually, I kind of miss it, because back then, you would go on the Friday, all the, all the new stuff would come in, and so it would just be like every DJ in the city trying to get in there first to get yeah. first dibs on the shipment, so it might only be like two copies of each record coming in, so you got to get in there first to get it. But it also like created kind of like a spot where everyone could talk shop and just catch up and what are you listening to? What are you playing? How's your club night doing? And it's just a, a way of socializing with people that you don't usually probably talk to because you're always working on the weekends. Yeah. And then when the digital age came about, like now it's like, you know, sitting in your office, listening to the new tracks that were released and drinking a beer, but no one's there with you. And it, I don't know, it kind of took something away from it that, that was kind of fun that I missed, but... But the, uh, you know, the other thing is, <clears throat> you know, to, if you had a five-hour gig, you used to have to take, you know, eight crates of records with you. So you're just, like, <laughs> carrying, like, milk crates of records to every club gig that you go to. Now, you know, you take your computer and you're good to go. Yeah. When we were traveling overseas and performing over there, a lot of the countries you have to get work visas for. But some countries, they're really expensive. And so we wouldn't get the work visa when you just go and try to sneak into the country and just say you're visiting, which is easy now, but you're rocking eight crates of records with you and trying to tell people in England that you're just visiting, <laughs> yeah, you end up in some you end up in some rooms getting questioned for sure. It's happened a few times, but I've never been sent home. I've never been kicked out of a country and sent home, but a few of my friends have. What's your favorite the favorite country you've ever been to? Um, Australia, Sydney is probably my favorite city. It's just uh, really, it's like a young city. It's on the beach. There's so much to do. There's, I mean, there's mountains with like wineries. You can go to the beach and do surfing. Has an urban nightlife. So, I mean, there's just something for everybody. And I think just because the weather's always so nice, people are very active down there, always doing outdoorsy stuff. So everybody looks good and, just, and always in a good mood. And it's just a real laid back spot, man. It's awesome. That's cool. Did you, uh, did you have to do gigs every night then? or? Uh, no, so you usually you would do like, um, you'd probably book like three nights. Like we'd do like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And you would do like Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, or something like that. And then wherever your last gig was, then you would be in that city for 
five or six days until the next weekend came about, wherever you were supposed to go. So you would either stay, you know, wherever you were. Say you're in Sydney, you would just stay in Sydney for five days and then fly off the next weekend to the next leg of the tour. Or you would go there early, just depending which city you like, you know, after you get used to it. Yeah. We had a lot of friends in Melbourne, so we would kind of um, always plan on Melbourne being like our final stop on the weekend, so then we could stay there for five days, we could stay with friends, um, you know, there's a lot to do, we kind of knew the places to go, and we could usually pick up gigs during the week at smaller bars, and it's nice. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. What was your favorite kind of record to mix, or was it... Uh, when we were doing all the overseas stuff, it was all house music, you know, so <clears throat> it was, um, that's when we were producing, and so our records were doing really well on the radio over in England and in Australia, so people, when they booked us, kind of expected us to play a certain st- sound and play, like, a bunch of our own productions and whatnot. Gotcha. Um, I know you're a big Morrissey fan. Oh, yeah, yeah, as far as, like, rock music, big Smiths yeah. fan, Smiths and Morrissey, yeah. Did, did that Bowie ever over your... here, Bowie's a good pick, you got some good <laughs> stuff there. Doors. <laughs> yeah, doors, yeah. Did you ever mix any of that in? Yeah, you know, I'd always try to, like, bring some element that wasn't techno to the mix. Um, it was kind of depending where I was, what I thought would go over. Obviously, like, Michael Jackson was always something you could bring in pretty easily. We used to always say it didn't matter where you were in the world. If you played a Michael Jackson record, people immediately started dancing and loved it, and it was just, like, you know, I mean, you knew that he was like a global phenomenon, but then once you got out there and actually, you know, you're playing whatever it is, Billie Jean or whatever in Germany and everyone's going crazy, you're just like, you know, he's the king of pop, you know, That's he's incredible. the king of pop for a reason. Yeah. When uh, when did you start doing all this? Was it was it like a high school thing, college? When did <clears throat> when did you make the switch from? This is what I want to do. Yeah, so most of my, like, um, you know, high school was all dedicated to tennis, um, playing tournaments every weekend, and it was kind of, you know, going down that road and got a scholarship here to Butler and didn't really start DJing until I was 29, and it just kind of started as a hobby. I was just doing it at home. There's no plans to, like, be a famous DJ. There really weren't famous DJs at that point, so it wasn't like a job career that you were like, oh, I'm going to become really good and put a marshmallow head on and make $4 million, you know, that didn't really exist at that point. And so I just did it because I loved house music and loved playing in music and um, just started DJing and got a couple gigs over in Broderpool. And next thing you know, I was playing some out of town gigs and the rave scene was kind of bubbling up at that time and started throwing some of my own warehouse raves and getting a couple thousand people to those. And I just started spreading. I was playing Chicago, St. Louis a lot, Cincinnati, and it just kept growing until we were in San Francisco, Dallas, Miami, New York, and all over. But for us, it was production once we started producing our own music. And that production um, started doing well, especially overseas on the radio. Then that's when we really saw um, our careers kind of become something that was like, okay, yeah, we, we, this is just all we, can, all we do now. It's like money making. That's pretty incredible. Um, that you was, and uh, Larner. Yeah, John Larner, yeah. Very cool. And then we kind of both kind of retired from that scene around the same time and just decided to start keeping it deep was the original name of our company here in town because that was the name of a monthly deep house music party that we did. And then as we started expanding our concerts from just deep house to doing 
you know, more mainstream EDM and hip hop and stuff like that. The keeping it deep didn't make sense anymore, but it was already branded really well. So we kind of wanted to keep the name and we couldn't figure out what we wanted to do with it. And so we just took the initials KID and Kid Presents and that's where we are now. I, uh, when I first met you, we started going out and you know, I was talking to other people about you because I've always heard a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. they, they call you the the underground king of Indianapolis. Oh wow, that's what okay. I heard. Yeah, I don't know yeah, about yeah. that, but um, no, you I mean... know, like everybody I ran into, as long as I said, you know, Slater Hogan, I'm in. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, definitely uh, people before us that were that were doing it that got me into it, and so you know, it's just something that we just continue doing in Indy, just trying to keep the underground scene alive by doing alternative music that's not very popular and you know it's it's our love we love it it doesn't make any money we usually lose money on most of the underground shows we do so we kind of do these commercial shows that do make money and then we take the profit from that and throw it back into the underground shows that we do so very cool you know the one thing like the, the underground is usually powered by the youth and one thing in indianapolis that hasn't happened is a group of young people pushing the underground like I feel like we were the last wave of people throwing raves in Indy and you know we were 30 at the time and no none of the kids that were going to the parties to our events have stepped up and continued to push that yeah and it's kind of sad but I mean we're like still the only ones kind of doing underground house music now let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor Use me, the mobile application that is eliminating business cards. Hello there. My name is Brody Meyer, and I'm the CEO of FuseMe. Good-looking people don't use business cards anymore. Good-looking people use FuseMe. So, are you DTF? Down to Fuse, that is? Thank you for listening to a word from our sponsor. Now let's get back to WHBC Radio. Because we hate business cards. So, uh, some of those underground shows you used to do, um, I've heard some pretty cool stories. Yeah. <laughs> you mind expanding on <laughs> one or two of your favorite? Um, yeah, you know, uh, one that was kind of like a landmark event for us and, and for the city. Um, we've been very successful with the events that we've been doing, and at, at that point, successful was... 1,500 to 2,500 people were coming to each event that we were doing and we were always looking to try to just go bigger and bigger and our goal um, you know was to become like legitimate concert promoters and not have to hide in the shadows and be able to do these in, in the bigger venues in town and so we decided we we're going to do a party at the state fairgrounds at the Coliseum and so we went over there had a conversation with them and they agreed to rent us the facility um, the hours of the event had to be noon to midnight. And you know, we were used to doing 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. at that point, but to become legitimate, obviously you're gonna have to adhere to the rules. And so uh, we're like, okay, great, we'll go noon to midnight. We were just calling it a music festival. And uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot was one of our headliners. So we had a <laughs> Grammy-winning artist on there, you know, Baby Got Back, obviously was his big song. Um, and then we had um, uh, man, I think Luke Slater, um, who was a European techno guy at the time, it was really big. 
And then our third room, I think, was uh, maybe Paul Johnson, who's a Chicago house music legend. Did a lot of work with Daft Punk at the time. So and we kind of had like these three styles of music that we were going to bridge together and just throw this big party. And we thought we had 7,000 people at this party. So we do, we do all the promo work. We do, I mean, we get our fire permits. We get every permit that you're supposed to get. Get all our security done. We probably got 40 grand wrapped up into this event. And the party's on a Saturday. And the Friday night before the party, we get a phone call from the fairgrounds that they want to have a meeting. And so we were like, well, this probably isn't going to be a very good meeting. Like, you could just tell something was weird. And we go over there. And the gentleman who was in charge <clears throat> said that they can no longer do the event and it's canceled. Jeez. And we're like, you know, how come we can't do this event? And he's like, well, because it's a rave. And we've been told by the police that you guys throw raves and, you know, raves are illegal and we don't want that kind of crowd here. And, you know, so we you know, gave him our spiel of, you know, the, the events from noon to midnight, so it's, it's during the daytime hours. We have a uh, hip-hop legend, Sir Mix-a-Lot, as our headliner, so I don't know how you're calling this a rave, you know. It didn't matter. He got a little feisty with us and wasn't very polite and basically kicked us out of the office and sent us on our way. And so we now had basically 12 hours to scramble and try to figure out what we wanted to do. <clears throat> and so we've been doing a lot of our events down at this bingo hall on Raymond and Sherman. And we got a hold of the guy that runs it and it was luckily it was available the next night. But we thought we were going to have more people than would fit in there. So we, um, there was a fenced in area outside behind the event. And we bought a bunch of inflatable furniture and turned it into this giant inflatable lounge and got all our sound and lights in over there. And by nine o'clock, we were like, we had to push the hours back and basically do it back to our old time of 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we pulled it Which off. Which I bet four, everyone 4, loved. 4,000 people showed up. Um, we had made maps and we were going to have our people stand at the fairgrounds and hand out maps for everyone that was coming there because this is before the internet so there's no way at this point to get the word out that the event had changed right <laughs> so everyone is going to be going there to, to this event well the fairgrounds had agreed to have their employees do it for us so their employees stood out there handed out maps and everybody to our new location and yeah we did four thousand people and we, we did have to turn away a bunch of people so it definitely hurt having a smaller venue and uh, we turned around and sued the fairgrounds <clears throat> for $300,000 for breach of contract. Well, because it's, uh, it's the Indiana State Fairgrounds, so essentially we sued the state of Indiana. No. Which we didn't re really realize at the time, was, you know. And so obviously they have all their resources and whatnot. And this case goes on for about a year, year and a half. And we end up winning and suddenly out of court. And um, right after that, Every event we tried to do was shut down by the police and by the city. And the mayor came out to one of them after they shut it down and gave a speech in the parking lot about raves and basically ended the rave scene at that point in Indianapolis. And that's what we kind of saw the writing on the wall, John and I did. And so shortly after the lawsuit, we kind of stepped aside and our partners at the time continued to throw the parties and they, they were the ones that... Um, were the ones that were getting shut down for various permitting reasons, but it was obvious that the city was upset about the, the lawsuit and wanted to 
shut us down. So they did force John and I into production and changed our career. So for us, like it was great, but, um, how old were you around this time? <clears throat> yeah, it was all, all, all of it happened right when I kind of started DJing. So like okay. yeah, 29, 30 years old, right in there. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, that, and that had to happen before, like where we would lose a venue the night before a party and we'd have to scramble and find a new one. But it never on that large a scale where we needed to find a venue that was going to hold that many people in that short time. So that propelled you guys into production. Mm -hmm. What was the next step into that? <clears throat> yeah, so we, we had produced probably 10 or 15 songs. We kind of started off doing uh, bootlegs, which, uh, you know, a bootleg is basically taking like an R&B or hip hop acapella of a current song that's on the radio and remixing it with our style of house music, but without getting the rights from the artist. All right, so, okay. you know, we were, our, our first one was Mary J. Blige, Family Affair. So we took the acapella of that record, made a house, our own house remix of it, pressed it on a white label, and a white label is a piece of vinyl that just has a white label on it with no markings. Nobody knows where it came from, but then no one knows who produced it either. So it's kind of like a catch-22. And we, we sent that out and um, it blew up and people started asking around, just trying to find out who did it. And, you know, it's, it's all word of mouth. So, you know, the word on the street was that these two guys from Indianapolis made it. And we started getting some calls from some, some people about it. And um, Mary J's people found out about it. And oh, no. um, we're reaching out to try to find out who did it. We didn't know if they were trying to, you know, put a cease and desist on it or if they were going to hire us to do remixes. We didn't know at the time. We were really young and new, and we were kind of scared that we were going to get in trouble for it and never followed up with any of the people. But looking back on it, we probably should have been like, yeah, we did it, and just taking the cease and desist from their attorney. And then what happens is they take ownership of the remix, and she really liked it, so then she may have put it out, and then we may have been like having an official remix. So looking back, we probably handled it wrong, but we didn't really know what was going on. It was all happening really fast. And then... Um, right around that same time, we gave a CD of 10 of our songs to Mark Farina, who's a legendary Deep House um, DJ, originally from Chicago, but had moved out to um, San Francisco at the time. And we had booked him for a party here in town and then gave him all our stuff. Never heard back from him about it, so we assumed he didn't like it. And then, I don't even remember, but it was probably a month or so after we gave him the, gave it to him, one of my friends hit me up. I was like, man, have you heard Mark's new mix from DNA Lounge out in San Francisco? It's like, no. Nah. He's like, check it out. So I downloaded it, listened to it, and he had like seven of our songs in a two-hour set on there. Oh, wow. We were like, oh, man, this is awesome. And then he went over to England and gave it to Pete Tong. Pete Tong um, is currently the biggest like electronic music DJ in the world. Um, runs a BBC radio program called The Essential Mix. And he can basically make or break your career as, a, as an electronic artist. And he charted three of our songs in the top ten. And from That's right when that happened, labels started hitting us up, started selling all our tracks. And I'm, I think we had like maybe 10, 12-inch singles come out within like a two- or three-month period of time, which is a lot. And we just kind of burst onto the scene. And you know, the rest is history, man. When you came back here, I don't know if it was before or after, but you guys were, uh, or you were DJing at somebody, uh, a basketball player's club, 
over in Broad Ripple. Uh, uh, Jermaine O'Neal um, from the Pacers was a part owner um, okay. of a club there called Club Seven. Yeah. You know, they were wanting, um, there were like three partners involved in, in that club, and they all kind of had a different music vision, which <clears throat> generally means it's probably not going to be a successful club if you have three partners, all with three concepts in their mind. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, we all kind of sat down and just decided that we wanted a very open format that played, you know, everything from like Michael Jackson to like current rap at that time and kind of mix it all up. And it was the grand opening night and, you know, the club was packed. Everything was going great. Format was working. Everyone was singing along to the songs. It's packed and up in the balcony, Jermaine O'Neal was up there with his buddies and just decided he wanted to take the party to the next level and sent a text up to the DJ booth to play a bunch of uh, current rap at that time to get everybody hype. And then he took like five or $10,000 cash and just chucked it <laughs> over the balcony for everybody. And, you know, a so riot ensued yeah. and the party got taken to the next level for sure. So Shoot a little plug down. What you have it on the 20th? Yeah, uh, February 20th, um, Steve Aoki's tour. Um He's got a new album called Colony, and so this is the two word to um, promote that. He's traveling with Designer, so it'll be him with Designer, so little trap and rap music with the, with the EDM stuff. And then I think they're bringing some um, uh, Steve Aoki's record labels called Dimmac, and I think there's some up-and-coming artists from the Dimmac label that'll be kind of the support before it. Very cool. Where can people buy tickets? Uh, they can just, uh, yeah, uh, it's on Eventbrite, so they can just go to Eventbrite and uh, search and find it on there. Um, it's selling pretty quick, so it'll definitely sell out. So get your tickets today. Let's go. If Slater Hogan had a commercial that could reach the whole country, yeah. maybe the world, we'll say the world, and you could give one piece of advice to everybody, what would it be? Just in terms of like music business, any any way you want to take this question, just could be in business, could be in life, could be yeah. What would you tell people? Just respect one another, man. You know, I love it. (laughs) It's like it's not that difficult. You know, after traveling as much as um, I have and seeing the world, you know, the everywhere I went, people were super nice to us. I've never really had a bad traveling experience and um, you know it was some of my traveling was right after 9-11 when people didn't you know like America and America's response to to 9-11 and um, even during that time you know people were still great with us the hospitality was great everywhere I went and you just kind of see no matter where you are any country in the world these people are just everybody just wants to be happy you know they just want to live a drama-free life and you know nobody wants war there's not people that are you know no country wants war yeah and i think sometimes people believe that some other countries are you know that stuff but i just respect everybody man love one another and i think you probably have a pretty good life <laughs> love it awesome well thanks for coming on yeah thanks really for having appreciate me. the conversation it's awesome shots shots let's go <laughs> let's get them let's get them going <laughs> Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. My name is Brody Meyer, and this was WHBC Radio, brought to you by the Fuse Me mobile application.